god. Why? Why? What? Uh, sorry. Hello. So I swear I don't try to open every show with an exasperated sigh. Welcome to the CLE Sports Talk Podcast. I am your host, Casey Drotter, and boy, do we have a lot to talk about. Some of it positive. I swear. I really do. And we'll get to that. But first, let's talk football. You know, even as the final minutes ticked off in a wire-to-wire victory over the Giants, I had some trouble embracing the LOL, and now we get to play the one-win Jets. That mentality? No. Couldn't do it. Just, I don't know. It reeked of a trap. A game that the Browns would surely enter thinking, (laughs) we got this. They're terrible. Only to stumble around aimlessly for four quarters. I trusted Coach Kevin Stefanski. He's very clearly not Freddie Kitchens when it comes to game prep. But I don't know. I had this weird feeling that something might not go as planned. And even in my worst fears, even in my boy, I sure hope that doesn't happen, worries, at no point. Did I anticipate what occurred with the Browns this weekend? In the span of 30 minutes on a Saturday night, my thoughts on this game shifted from, I mean, they should win by at least a couple scores, to, no, no, not, not, not like this. By now, you know the drill. Linebacker BJ Goodson tested positive for COVID. Then we found out that apparently the whole damn receiver's room came in close contact. So there goes Jarvis Landry, Richard Higgins, Donovan Peoples-Jones, and Kaderil Hodge. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, and Jacob Phillips, rookie linebacker who had just earned himself a starting role. COVID list. Wyatt Teller, one of the best guards in the league, still out. And, for craps and giggles, Jedrick Wills was announced out before the game with an illness that wasn't COVID. Awesome. Get well soon. Just swell. Swell stuff. Cleveland's starting receivers were Marvin Hall, Jamarcus Bradley, and Derek Willies. Outstanding. And for a moment, I'm not going to lie, I thought, okay, it's the Jets. It's the Jets. And Stefanski, you know, he's calm, cool, and collected. The guy's house could be on fire and his pulse rate will not elevate. It's a curveball to find this out, oh, 18 hours ahead of kickoff. But you just watch. He can figure out a way to scheme this and skate out of Jersey with a win. Maybe a close one, but a win nonetheless. (laughs) It's it's fine. Nope, Browns lose. uh, All they had to do was beat the Jets and a playoff berth, something which has been labeled, quote, a near certainty for weeks and something I absolutely refuse to acknowledge as such for this exact reason, would have been clinched. But no. No, what's the fun in eliminating drama, am I right? Just... Uh, where to start? Honest to God, extremely deflating 24 hours. Just... Uh, 23-16 is your final score. At one point, it was 20-3, to so yippee for making a comeback attempt. Of the three just got inserted into the starting lineup the night before wide receivers, only Jamarcus Bradley made any impact at all. Hall had one reception. Willies wasn't even targeted. The Jets stacked the box against the run quite frequently, 
daring Baker Mayfield to throw while being protected by two backup linemen. As a result, he finished with 285 yards passing, no TDs, and a passer rating of 68.5. Also had three fumbles, two of them lost. One of them on the final drive of the game as he attempted a QB sneak on fourth and short. Not good. Not, not good. And I've been standing for Baker Mayfield all year. Anytime people bash him, I say, let me rephrase that. Anytime people bash him by way of claiming he is a bust and needs to go, that's when I jump in and say, that thought is dumb. But I'm not, I, he was bad yesterday. This is a bad showing on his part. Yes, he was working with wideouts he may have very well just met on the flight to Jersey. Yes, he was down two of the best linemen on the team. Yes, he was basically forced to throw because the run game wasn't working at all. Those are all very valid call-outs. But you gotta hold on to the football. You can't be just putting it on the turf three times in a single game can't have it and he called himself out for it I appreciate the accountability but he's certainly not going to get a pass for playing with a wideout core which wasn't even planning on attending the game in general as of Saturday morning he also threw the ball 53 times that's not ideal and this is really a source of divisiveness among Brown's Twitter you had some people wanting to bash coach Kevin Stefanski for leading so heavily on passing when you have a depleted receiving group and two stud running backs against the worst team in football. You had other people respond to that by noting the Jets sold out for the run all day because the Browns had a depleted receiving group and two stud running backs. Both are valid callouts. Look, New York knew the Browns were going to try to win the game with the run. Zero shock value in that. No, Cleveland, you will have to try and beat us with Marvin Hall. It's a situation that makes it really hard to run the ball. However, there is weight in the argument that Stefanski didn't put a ton of effort into getting the run game going in the first place. First drive, three and out, all passes. Second drive, field goal, nine plays, only two of which were runs. Next drive, three and out, two run plays, yay. Next drive, one play fumble, boo. Next drive, eight plays, four running plays for a whopping three total yards. Next drive, five plays, one run. Next drive was near the end of the second quarter, so all passes as the Browns attempted a 61-yard field goal from punter Jamie Gillen. Yep, missed that one. And then the Jets scored a touchdown to open the second half, and it is 20-3. So yeah, the Browns were playing down three scores and basically forced Mayfield to throw a lot from there. But it didn't seem like the team did much to try and open up the run game in the first place. Very few screens, which are quite effective with guys like Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. Just a lot of basic handoffs, which went mostly nowhere. So they scrapped it. No, it was not going to be easy to run the ball in this one. People need to stop pretending that's the case. There were just no running lanes to work with, which is usually what happens when you're working with two backup linemen and practice squad receivers who might not be that keen on their blocking assignments. Again, though, there just wasn't a ton of concerted effort when it came to running the ball in the first place. Frankly, if I had to guess, I would assume that what happened was Kevin Stefanski was using the same mindset that he took into the game against Tennessee. You know, oh, they expect us to try and win this game on the ground, so we're going to catch them off guard and throw it all day. Which I get, because the Jets very clearly expected the Browns to run the entire game, but it's... It's a whole lot easier to go with this approach when, you know, you have receivers who don't require a practice walkthrough in a hotel parking garage five hours before kickoff. 
<sighs> Defense, yikes. <laughs> Not much to say there. All three of the Jets' touchdowns came on blown coverage. The targeted wideout on each play had a good 10 yards of free space in every direction. Feels like that's less than ideal. All in all, 333 total yards allowed to a team averaging the least yards per game in the NFL. <laughs> Ick. No, this defense hasn't thrived all year long. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But on a day where the team needed this unit to really step up, it did not. All in all, this was not one person's fault. Much to the chagrin of Brown's Twitter, there isn't one single person to point at and say, that's why they lost. Kevin Stefanski didn't do a great job play calling. Baker Mayfield didn't do a good job hanging on to the football. The defense didn't do a good job of playing defense. And COVID didn't do a good job of disappearing like far too many idiots assumed it would have by now. Don't pin this all on one player or coach. There is plenty of blame to go around. All right, so where does that leave us? Well, depending on the Raiders to help out was a fool's errand. The Browns thought they might have had some help there. Last second, it really looked like they did. But instead, they had to spend Saturday night watching John Gruden's team crap the bed while praying the practice squad wideouts memorize their pre-snap adjustments on the flight in. Baltimore very obviously wasn't going to lose to the Giants. The Colts did lose to the Steelers. Felt dirty rooting for them. Yes, it did. But whatever, whatever, I, whatever. It's brought us here where the Browns are win or go home in Week 17 against Pittsburgh. Swell. But yeah, that's the long and short of it. Win, and you clinch a playoff berth for the first time since the 2002 season. Lose, and we once again watch this team win 10 games and have nothing to show for it but a participation trophy. Again. For the second time since this team returned in 1999, the Browns could pull off double-digit victories and miss the playoffs. I, can we not? Honestly, 2020 has been a year for everyone involved to have it wrap up by way of Cleveland losing a playoff berth thanks to COVID forcing them to play with practice squad wideouts and backup linemen. No, no, I do not accept that. Too mean, 2020. Too, too mean. But yeah, here we go. Winner go home. Am I confident? Not even remotely. You can say, oh, you know, they might just be playing Pittsburgh's backups. They got nothing to play for. Cool. They did that last year in a must-win game and lost. Hell, they lost to the backup quarterback's backup. Miss me with the this win should be easy noise. No, 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 no. This team doesn't have a history of coming out on top in those contests. I'm not saying they're going to lose. I am not sitting here and predicting a loss. I'm just not going to put money down on Cleveland. This whole situation feels like a classic Brown scenario. One of those stupid segments we're going to have to see for years to come. <laughs> oh, the Browns, they came so close, so close to their first playoff berth in over a decade. And then, wouldn't you know it, COVID struck. <laughs> oh, golly, the Browns are just so much fun to poke fun at. Tell me you can't picture that. Honestly, I can. I started hearing the jokes at 6 p.m. Saturday night. If you would have told me that the Rona was going to strike at the worst possible time for one NFL team this season, I would have yelled Browns before you were done talking. Because Browns. Now, on the flip side, the same old Browns, they lose that Dallas game. The same old Browns, they lose the Colts game. 
the same old Browns fold and don't put up a fight in the Baltimore game. Throughout this season, this team has given several indications that they are not the same old Browns, that they are not the team always waiting for Lucy to yank the ball away. You want to hammer that home? Don't choke. You want to prove things are different, that this isn't a franchise that's always just waiting for hard luck to jump around the corner? Win. Win. Just win. Win and go to the playoffs. There's no excuse for not being amped for this game, for not hitting the field ready to go balls to the wall. A chance at the playoffs is waiting, and all you have to do is score more points than the bully who's been spending decades stealing your milk money and giving you atomic wedgies. If that's not enough motivation, then yeah, missing the postseason is exactly what you deserve. Now, in fairness, I'm going to try and end this segment with a little positivity. For those who are mad that 2020 is currently picking on the Browns, it's worth noting that the upcoming game will be played in 2021. So, maybe that helps. I don't know. All right, I need something happy, something positive, something I can look at and say, you know what? Sunday sucked. But at least we have fill in the blank here. And to fill in that blank, we have the Cavs. Uh, okay, let's talk basketball as a way to brighten the show. Are the Cavs good? They're 3-0. and I know, they haven't lost yet. I don't know if I'm being subtle here, but this is quite a surprise. Yeah. They opened against the Hornets, who aren't expected to do much, but they still gave themselves enough of a lead to withstand a 42-point blitzing from Terry Rozier and still win by seven. And they beat the Pistons, who also aren't expected to do much this year, but the Cavs fought back several times to win a game in double OT. They took Detroit's best shot. Cleveland went from being up 78-67 in the third to being down 101-93 with four minutes left in the game. Rallied overtime. Fell behind 112 to 103 with 215 left in that frame, rallied double OT. In fact, they ripped off an 18 0 run from that point to seal the deal. Not bad. Not bad at all. And then they played Philly, who did sit Joel Embiid. That's notable. Yet the Cavs rolled. Rolled. We saw garbage time basketball in favor of the Cavs. Let that sink in. Yes, I know, Embiid is a monster who in this very young season is currently averaging 28 points and 12 rebounds per game. Still, they rolled. Let's face facts. This is, for the most part, the same Cavs team which would get scorched by lesser opponents on a given night at any point last year. They lost by almost 20 to the same Knicks team they spanked eight days previously early last season. So yeah. I'm going to soak in a blowout Cavs victory over a quality Eastern Conference team. What? Fight me. This is, again, it's basically the same team. They lost Tristan Thompson. They added Isaac Okoro. They've added JaVale McGee, a player whose impact I woefully underestimated. And that's it. Colin Sexton, Darius Garland, Kevin Love, Larry Nance, Jetty... I'm never not going to do that, by the way. Uh, for a few games, Andre Drummond, these guys were all here last season. When they got off to a, hey, look at that nice start, and then completely melted down. And they, honest to God, they look like a completely different team. A team, mind you, 
that is playing its first competitive basketball in nine freaking months. It's fantastic. And can we talk about the Island of Misfit Guards? Both Colin Sexton and Darius Garland got their respective rookie seasons off to shaky starts. Both Colin Sexton and Darius Garland found themselves as the subjects of fan ire during those rookie seasons. And both Colin Sexton and Darius Garland are playing out of their minds right now. Yes, I know, three-game sample size, but what a damn sample size it is. Sexton, 27 points per game, leads the team, shooting 59% from the field and 66.7 from three. 66.7! He shot 38% from three last season. Small sample size alert. Darius Garland, 19 points per game. 8.3 assists per game. Small sample size alert. His plus minus rating by game has gone from plus 4 to plus 19 to plus 21. The Cavs scored 21 more points than Philly when Darius Garland was on the floor. Shooting 54.8% from the field, 50% from 3, and damn it if he doesn't look significantly more confident on the court. It's night and day. Moves the ball with purpose. Gone is the tentative player who would get really gun-shy. We saw him so frequently last year. He just looks much more comfortable. Combined in three games, this backcourt has given the Cavs 138 points, 25 assists, and an overall plus-minus rating of plus 68. God damn! Hell yeah! Yes, I peppered that entire bit with some small sample size alerts because it is. It's three games, but three very impressive games. And it's important to call that out because this is exactly what the Cavs were hoping to see from these two. I initially thought that whenever Kevin Porter Jr. returns, that he'd eventually replace either Sexton or Garland in the starting lineup. But if those two are playing like this, no. No splitting up whatsoever. And yeah, the sample size is minuscule, but it's a hell of a lot better than anything we saw from these two when they played together last year. We knew one of them had to become a more willing passer for this pairing to work, and Garland appears to be taking that role. We knew that, just in general, they had to figure out how to be effective together, and they sure look like they're keying in on that as we speak. Yes, both guys were slow out of the gate, but what was lost in all of that were very clear reasons for why that happened. Sexton arrived as that guy the team picked immediately before LeBron James left. So that's going to give him some expectations that no 20-year-old should ever have to endure. At least not one who is still raw coming into the pros. Darius Garland played just five games for Vanderbilt, so his rookie season was essentially his first time playing competitive basketball in a year. Believe it or not, those circumstances make it a bit difficult to thrive the second you throw on an NBA uniform. So it was no surprise they were both a little clunky to start their careers, and it's extremely refreshing to see what the Cavs front office saw in this backcourt combo start to come to fruition. They wanted their own little Damian Lillard-CJ McCollum dynamic, which, hey, doesn't just happen instantly. But if what we've seen from Sexton and Garland so far is what we can expect from here on out, who knows, we may be closer to that scenario than ever before. Which is important, because these two were the first draft picks made from GM Kobe Altman, so how they pan out is going to be crucial when it comes to evaluating him and determining if owner Dan Gilbert was smart to make Altman the first GM he's ever offered a contract extension to. 
Altman has made other moves. He traded for Andre Drummond. He extended Jetty Osmond, who's playing quite well off the bench, if I do say so myself. But how Sexton and Garland and eventually Isaac Okoro pan out, that's going to be the biggest measuring stick for Altman. And it's too early. It's too early to make any conclusive statements. Hell, it was even before this season started. But again, if what we're seeing is more than just a hot start, if this becomes a nightly routine for Sexton and Garland, I don't know. Maybe we take back some of that Kobe slander that we heard last year. Just saying. All in all, the Cavs, they just look like they're having fun. Easy to say when you're 3-0, but during games, they actually appear to be enjoying themselves. It doesn't sound like a huge talking point, but to me it is. They've won a total of 38 games in two seasons. They're on their fourth head coach in that time span for two straight years. The coach they entered the season with and the one they ended it with were two completely different people. Expectations coming into this year were, again, bottom barrel. So to see them play this well early and have fun doing so, that to me is a big deal. Because we know what happened the first time LeBron left. The Cavs were a shell of a franchise for four years. Even when Kyrie showed up, highlights included clutch shots, sure, but also holding a press conference with Dion Waiters to sell the narrative of, no, we do not hate each other. We are best friends. We very much enjoy each other's company. I get up every day and say, boy, I cannot wait to hit the court with my pal, Dion Waiters. Best buddies. To see real, actual signs of life hints that maybe, just maybe, they can eventually assemble a competitive basketball team without pining for the return of the NBA's greatest player. Yeah, I'll soak that in any chance I get. Now, it needs to be said, they hit the wall hard after a similarly fun start last year. Not this fun, but they started 2-2, two and two, eventually 4-5, and five, and we thought, yay! Fun basketball ahead of schedule, and gee golly, I gotta tell you, it looks like they love playing for John Beeline. And, you know, after that, they lost six straight, only won one game in the span of a month, dumped on their coach anonymously by December, said coach left during the All-Star break before completing his first year with the team, but not before a fun game of whoopsie, I meant to say slugs. What I'm saying is, this is fun. I'm enjoying myself. The Cavs are showing real signs of growth, but just please keep it up. Prove to me and all of us that this isn't fool's gold, that you can roll with the punches if you hit a three, four-game losing streak, because the past two years, when that happens, the good vibes get taken out behind the shed and shot. I would very much appreciate it if that didn't happen this year. Okay, well, from a baseball perspective, still nothing. The Cleveland baseball team is still on winter break, not, not much to write home about. Obviously not spending anything. Well, actually, Nick Whitgren got re-signed. Dodged arbitration with him, and I'm cool with that. No complaints about Nick Whitgren whatsoever. I wrote before last season that Cleveland needed to ease him out of the setup role. That certainly wasn't coming from an angle of, This guy stinks! I just thought, wow, his hard hit rate jumped 13% from 2018 to 2019. And he also averaged the highest exit velocity of his career that season. Per StatCast, his expected ERA was almost two whole points higher than his actual ERA. So yeah, I was a little bit worried that he was flirting with trouble. Wasn't sure about him being cemented as Mr. Eighth Inning. This was obviously before Emmanuel Kloss got popped for PEDs, but I will eat crow. 
And also note that Whitgren proved me wrong last year. His ERA did go up, but overall he was solid. His hard hit rate went down. His strikeout rate went up. Good stuff, I will say. Still leaning towards pushing him a little earlier in the game. Like seventh inning. Let's just, let's just do that. Again, I said as much last year, and he did fine. In fact, 2020 marked Whitgren's highest leverage index of his career, which means he averaged more high-pressure appearances when he entered the game than ever before. And in high-leverage situations, he only gave up one earned run. But he, again, he flirts with fire every now and then. In 6.1 innings pitched in high-leverage situations, he gave up four walks and hit three batters, allowing an overall OBP of 407. For his career, his OBP is much lower in high-leverage situations, but of his 209 career innings pitched, only 14% can be labeled high-leverage. Long story short, he's had his moments in that situation. I'm just still on board with eventually pushing him into a different spot. And again, one earned run, yay, but I'm still sticking with the same approach as last year, giving the ninth inning to James Karinchak, letting Emmanuel Kloss eventually earn the eighth and deploy Whitgren in the sixth or seventh. Of course, in order for this to actually take place, Kloss needs to prove he's legit and pass drug screenings. That last bit, probably a little more crucial than the other one. Outside of that, though, Cleveland's just sitting here waiting for its phone to ring with a blockbuster offer for the star shortstop the team drafted and determined it can no longer afford. Fun times. Have I mentioned this sucks? Probably, but not nearly enough. Just this idea that a team prizes itself out of its homegrown star. Imagine the Cavs drafting LeBron, and come contract time, the front office just said, whoa, well, he's just too expensive for us, better trade him. That's what's happening here. Lindor was drafted by Cleveland and will likely be leaving Cleveland before this coming spring training because he's too good and therefore costs too much. I defend tribe ownership here and there, but when it comes to this, inexcusable. I say it now, I'll say it whenever that seemingly inevitable trade comes, and I'll say it regardless of what Cleveland gets back in return. In no sport should we see a scenario where a team decides trading homegrown, franchise-altering talent is a better route to take than keeping him in town. Which brings me to another point. We need to talk about the idea of adding Carlos Carrasco to a Lindor trade. It's been discussed here and there, and God, is that a kick in the pants. But if you ask me, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think offering a package of Lindor and Carrasco is Cleveland's best chance to get a great return. And yes, if you are wondering, I did just die a little inside. I, I'm just not sold on this idea that Cleveland can bring home a strong return dealing just Francisco Lindor. I know I'm repeating myself, but it bears repeating. He's arguably the best shortstop in baseball, but so many things are working against Cleveland in this. A, one year of team control left. Two, the pandemic is scaring a lot of teams from spending a ton. Tampa, by the way, just traded Blake Snell, the only one of two players on their entire roster that is due an eight-figure salary in 2021. So let that sink in. And if you're looking to trade for Lindor and extend him, you will have to spend money. And D, because of that, 
interested clubs may be antsy when it comes to dealing some of the top prospects on their farms. All in all, this is just not a good time to be shopping a franchise-altering player with one remaining year of team control. So, in order to avoid getting a return that makes the entire fan base say, oh, wait, that's it? That's all they got? You may have to sweeten the pot. And in a league where starting pitching is always being sought after, the best way to do so might be tossing in Carlos Carrasco. It makes sense from Cleveland's perspective, since the organization has the astounding ability to turn your average Walmart greeter into a top-tier starting pitcher, and also because Carrasco costs money. So that immediately puts him on the hot seat with this club. He's owed $12 million next year, $12 million in 2022, he has a vesting option in 2023. Since ownership is currently allergic to the idea of embracing eight-figure salaries, I'd imagine trading Carrasco is a move it would support. From a prospective buyer's point of view, $24 million is a good amount to take on for a pitcher entering his age 34 season. That said, Carrasco has been extremely steady for Cleveland since 2014. Outside of last year, and yes, you can say that about a season which involved a cancer diagnosis, his ERA hasn't gone north of 363 since 2014. His FIP hasn't gone north of 372. His K rate, it's only dipped below 26% once. And his walk rate is consistently better than average. Actually, that number was a little shaky last year, but that's about it. So it isn't like an interested team would be paying $24 million for an unproven pitcher. It's a lot of money to take on, especially if the buying team can extend Lindor, but you're getting a proven veteran pitcher and the best shortstop in baseball. Those are things you have to pay a high price for in both dollars and prospects, which is why I think a Lindor-Carrasco package, that's your best bet at landing a haul. You're no longer offering just a marquee shortstop who happens to be approaching a free agency he's reportedly very eager to try out. Add a starting pitcher with at least two more years of slightly expensive control to that equation. It's hard to argue against giving Cleveland some solid prospects, maybe a proven big leaguer. Outfielder, maybe? <laughs> One can dream and hope. Now let's not ignore the elephant in the room. That being that this would just be the absolute worst way for Carrasco's time in Cleveland to end. I, he's been there since 2009. He battled leukemia. He rebounded from a tough 2019 on the field with a strong showing last year. It was already tough to see Corey Kluber's time with the Tribe end in a salary dump. To do that for two straight winners, that's a tough pill to swallow. I get it. You can't pay anyone eight figures this year. Okay, maybe I don't fully get that because both Carrasco and Lindor represent the only Cleveland players due a salary north of $10 million next season, but it'd still be such a shame. Just, I know, storybook endings are hard to come by for professional athletes, I understand, but if anyone on this roster deserves just that, it's Carrasco. And being traded like this is not a storybook ending. Who knows? We'll see. I just, if I haven't made it very clear... I'm not expecting a huge return for Lindor. That's why I'm saying add some more to it. It would stink, but then again, so would only getting a couple lower-tier prospects for one of the best players in baseball. And I don't expect it lower. I, I should clarify. I don't expect it to be some random high-A guys who have potential. They should get something back. 
but just not a lot is working in their favor right now. So sweetening the pot may be the only way to guarantee you don't get full-on fan backlash the second Lindor is traded, which, by the way, is unavoidable, but soften the blow any way you can. Speaking of which, I typically end this show with a vent of the week. Somehow, in 188 podcast episodes, I've been able to end them screaming mad all but, I don't know, three times. But you know what? 2020 has sucked. Real bad pandemics, racial injustice, an ungodly amount of division, sports in a bubble, sports outside of a bubble, no fans at sports, and I know those last three things a lot lower on the priorities list than the first two. I've personally gone 12 rounds with COVID and been dealt some tough blows from a career standpoint, and Lord knows I am not alone in that. But this is the last episode of 2020. I don't know when I'll be back on because life gets real busy again in the coming days. I will try, like I said last time, but I just don't know. But I do know that this show wraps up 2020 for me from a podcast standpoint. And you know what? I'm not ending it salty. Nope, won't do it. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. This year has been incredibly draining for everyone. It has been daily stress. Anxiety can be found. The second you pick up your phone, there has been no avoiding it. So I'm not going to add to that. No, I'm ending this year on a positive note. Because if you're listening to this, you too dealt with every blow this year had to offer. And you're still standing. And you're ready to toss this hellscape into the dumpster and move into 2021. A year which, let's call it what it is, won't be immediately better the second the clock strikes midnight this Friday. But there's hope. There's a chance we get out of this disaster and come out on the other end ready to get back to normal. To not spend every day waiting for the next kick in the pants. I don't know if it'll happen. I don't know what's going to happen, period. But I made it through this year, and so did you. So all we can do is get up off the mat and hit the ground running. Will 2021 end up better than 2020? No freaking clue. But I know I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that happens. I hope you do too. Because again, if you took every punch these past 365 days have thrown at you and you're still standing, you're ready to take on anything too. So yeah, no vent today. I just don't feel like ending this year on a sour note. We've had enough of those. There's no sense in me bending over backwards to provide another one. I hope the next year brings you much more happiness, much less stress, and maybe, just maybe, the opportunity to see what people's faces look like from the nose down. So that's going to do it. That wraps up a strange, strange year. I know I wasn't as active on this show as I could have been. Uh, 2020, what, do you, what, what, what can I say? I, you know, here's what it is. I've been your host, Casey Drotter. Again, the frequency of the show, it's going to go in flux again. Life is getting hectic. I will try to get on some show, and we'll see what happens next week. I don't know what the Browns are going to do. If the Browns win, I'll, I'll make an extra concerted effort to get a show in because I've, I've been recording this show since 2016, and obviously in that time frame I've had no playoff games to prep for because well, the Browns have been terrible. But we'll see. I've been your host, Casey Drotter. You can follow me on Twitter at cdrotter19 or on Facebook at CaseyDrotterRant. That's all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the CLA Sports Talk podcast on Apple and Spotify. And yeah, let's get it, 2021. We are going to make sure you are infinitely better than what we just dealt with. I wish you well. Happy goddamn New Year because we all need exactly that. Wear your damn mask. Go Dayton Flyers.